helping our veterans instead of hurting them. Hello everybody, I'm David Schuster and thanks for joining us on the conversation. Despite some changes, legislative changes and otherwise to the VA several years ago, there's still some stories that seem to be bubbling up of problems that our veterans are facing and dealing with the system. And they've been articulated in compelling fashion in a remarkable new book. It's called Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is making veterans sicker and poor. The author joins us today is Dr. Daniel Gade, a retired US Army Lieutenant Colonel. He's also a professor and public policy leader. Dr. Gade, thanks for joining us. Um, first of all, you you were a combat veteran. Uh, you were severely wounded in 2004, required amputation. Tell us about that experience, both the injury and what it was like dealing with VA hospitals. Yeah, so I, I was actually wounded in action twice. Uh, the first time was a year ago on November 10th. I'm sorry, it was, it was uh, the anniversary is November 10th every year. And then I was wounded the second time on January 10th, 2005, which is when I ultimately required amputation. And you know, I spent about six months as an inpatient in the hospital at Walter Reed, which is a military hospital, not a VA hospital. Um, and during that time, I began to notice something very disturbing uh, in my fellow wounded warriors. And that was that a lot of people were becoming dependent on others in a way that was not warranted by their wounds. And in some cases, the conversation wasn't about how much I can get better, how can I thrive, how can I live with my new and serious disability? It was how much disability benefits can I get? And I didn't really understand why that was a problem until later when I went and got my master's degree and I went and worked at the White House doing veterans policy and really began to discover that we have a system that pays veterans to be sick. And then at the same time, wonders why we have so many sick veterans. It creates what we call perverse incentives in veterans recovery. And that is an incentive not to work because if you can tell the VA, hey, no, I really can't work because of my disability, whether that's true or not, you get more money. That's right, there's a specific program actually, I call it the worst and this is a, it's a competitive field for what I'm about to say, but uh, the worst program in the federal government is this program called individual unemployability, which literally pays veterans at the 100% rate, so about $3,000 a month if they don't work. But if they try to go back to work, their benefit gets cut back to about $1,200 a month, depending on their specific circumstances. So think about that. You're separating a veteran from the labor market explicitly and basically creating a huge tax if he tries to go back to work or she tries to go back to work. And what we know about men specifically, it's really important for men, their identity is derived from their work. You know, Women can get their identity typically from work or from family. Men get their identity almost exclusively from their work. And this program separates veterans from their work or from their potential to thrive in the in, in society. And, and you know, and it's horrifying, right? That we have a veteran suicide crisis right now. 22 veterans a day are killing themselves. And yet we have systems that are promoting veterans or, or that, are, that are forcing veterans into this life of dependency and sort of lack of self-worth and it's really really bothersome there there are uh, there are better ways to help veterans and and I lay it out in this book wounding warriors yeah, I mean, having your life sort of defined as well, you are dependent on government checks because you can't work. I can imagine how depressing that is for a lot of people. Um, you point out that, um, well, I'm a little confused though that this is still sort of out there because a lot of our, a lot of our viewers, a lot of people who've been following VA policy will recall the beginning of the Trump administration. There was this remarkable VA bill legislation to sort of change how the VA is run. How was this allowed to stay out there? How come this wasn't closed? Yeah, so part of it, part of this is a structural problem, a structural understanding problem. So the the reforms that President Obama started with VA, the the Mission Act and the Choice Act. One of the I'm actually 
Um, not clear which one, I don't remember exactly which one started during Obama and then which one started during Trump. But the, the two have similar reforms, but the reforms are on the healthcare only side. They allow veterans to get uh, healthcare on the economy or on the civilian economy. They don't require veterans to be tied down to the VA hospitals and that kind of thing. But the premise of wounding warriors isn't really, the, the book doesn't really treat the healthcare side of the equation because actually more than half of the VA's budget is spent on the disability side. So this book is an, this, this book, Wounding Warriors, is really a critique of the VA disability system that pays veterans to be sick. If you think about it, you know, the healthcare system is trying to help veterans be better and the disability system is paying them to be worse off. And so what you have is, veterans who are paid cash, you know, transfers into their bank accounts if they can present the worst symptoms possible. I always use David, I use the analogy of the of the plow and the sword. You know, before military service, everybody's a productive plow. And then we bring them into military service and we heat them up and we sharpen them into swords and we use those swords for our nation's purposes. And then and then what what we do after service is the purpose of this book Wounding Warriors. And what I think we should do with those swords, after they're not used for our nation's purposes anymore, we should reheat them and reshape them into productive plows. And that means reskill, upskill, and transition so that veterans can thrive in their communities rather than take those swords and throw them in the corner where they become rusty. You know, one of our one of our uh, uh, people that we that we cite in the book, this woman whose name in the book is Molly. That's not her real name; it's a pseudonym. But but she describes her, and this is a quote, she says that she felt like discarded government waste because of the way the disability system treated her. And that disability system, in the course of talking with all these people for the book, it sounds like a lot of them felt enormous pressure to be dishonest in order to maintain their benefits. Yeah, 100%. So um, I'll give you an example with uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder, for example. It's rated at either 30%, 70%, or 100%. And if you have these symptoms, you get a 30% rating. If you have these symptoms, you get a 70% rating. If you have these symptoms, you get a 100% rating. And so the incentive for a veteran is to, and you can do this, you can actually go onto the internet and Google, how do I get 100% PTSD rating from the VA? And it says, okay, here you got to endorse these symptoms. You know, you have to say you have erectile dysfunction. You have to say you have uh, nightmares. You have to say you have all these things. And get this: the person who is actually doing the evaluation has no clue whether any of that is true or not. So you can go in and present your sickest self or a fiction of your sickest self and get yourself to that hundred percent rating. And then here's the tragedy, David: there's no requirement once you receive a hundred percent disability compensation from the VA. There is no requirement at all that you are seeking ongoing treatment. And so we see a huge drop off in people who, uh, <clears throat> who are receiving mental health treatment once they get their 100% uh, diagnosis. And it's a real human tragedy. I mean, we're, we're talking, I don't care about the money. I don't care about the budgetary stuff. I care about the fact that we're creating a victim class in the minds of civilians who observe veterans and in the veterans themselves. I would imagine that the original way this was structured was with some good intentions. And that is if somebody does try to go back to work and it and it doesn't work for them and they can't do it, you want to make sure that they still get paid because they, they can't work. But so keeping keeping in mind those folks who, who may try to get work and, and, and can't and need to sort of be able to fall back, what's the solution here in order to make sure that nobody sort of falls through the cracks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, there is definitely a place for disability compensation. And in some cases, you know, you think about somebody who's been Shot in the head and is it has you know serious cognitive deficits, serious life impacts forever. 
you know, we can't do enough for those people. Let's do more. Let's let's give them more resources, more caregivers, more stuff, more money even. Um, but for people who could work or could not, depending on whether they uh, get a high level of compensation, what we ought to be doing is helping them get uh, the reskill and transition assistance they need, so that they can get employed and get and 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 earn this much instead of being given this much by the VA. In other words, our main focus, and I lay this out in the epilogue of Wounding Warriors, which by the way, woundingwarriors.com. I'll send you a signed copy. Um, otherwise, you can get it on Amazon and Audible and every place else. But um, but what we ought to be doing is we ought to be um, helping veterans. Uh, be their best selves rather than get this much for being their sickest selves. And the great irony in this is that one of the topics we like to talk about is sort of the transition of the workforce, and and that we're going from a society where, you know, jobs you change jobs every few, you know, every ten years. Now it's you know maybe every two years that you know half of all the jobs that are out there um, are disappearing, and we won't have names for the jobs that are coming online over the next ten to fifteen years. I've heard from a lot of people, particularly in the medical field and hospitals administration, who say their best recruits. The people who are best equipped to do the job are military veterans because of the structure and, and that they got when they were in the service. And so there's 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 certainly a recognition in certain sectors of our society. There's a place for veterans. We just have to give them the right training. And it, we, and it also sounds like though we have to give them the incentive to be able to pursue it. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely incentives. It's definitely extra training. You know, if somebody leaves the military as an infantry soldier, you know, there, there's not many civilian analogs to infantry work. And by the way, maybe you don't want to do infantry work your whole life. And so you want to be a leader, you want to be a, a, you know, something else. So we owe those veterans. And this is something that we clearly owe veterans. We owe them a chance to be reshaped from that sword back into a plow, a better plow than they were before, but a plow nevertheless uh, useful for civilian purposes. Um, you know, but but this this system, as bad as it is, has been in place really for over a hundred years. Um, President Eisenhower was blowing the whistle on this uh, when he put his friend and West Point classmate um, Omar Bradley into a reform program and said, "Hey, you need to fix this." And that was 1956. So well, this is going on a long time. And just real, in the real short time we have left, how aware are members of Congress, uh, legislatures, about this? And and is there the awareness to be able to, to tackle this? Well, for sure, there's the awareness. The behind closed doors, you know, I've worked at the White House. I've talked to these people behind closed doors. I'm, I'm friends with many of them, actually. Um, but it's not awareness that's the problem. It's will. And the political left makes a mistake of believing that all veterans are victims, and so they deserve everything. The political right makes a mistake of believing that all veterans are heroes and deserve everything. And then these very powerful interest groups stand under the deserve everything tree and shake it for money not realizing or not wanting to realize that what they're actually doing is creating a victim class out of the very veterans that they purport to help. Dr. Daniel Gay, the book is Wounding Warriors, How Bad Policy is Making Veterans Sicker and Poorer. Dr. Gay, a terrific project. Thanks so much for joining us on the conversation. We appreciate it. A joy to be on with you, David. Thank you so much. Yeah. Welcome back to the conversation. I'm David Schuster. Yes, there is corruption in Congress, but it is nothing compared to the corruption that exists now in many state legislatures. And this has been underscored by a remarkable new book by David Pepper. He's the former Ohio State Democratic Party chair. He's a lawyer, served in local elected politics, and he's the author of the book Laboratories of Autocracy. 
Laboratories of Autocracy. David, good to have you on the program. So it sounds like, our, I mean, look, our viewers may be familiar with some of the election laws and bills and things that are circulating around state legislatures, but your book underscores right. that it's even worse than that. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a whole combination of of the attacks on voter rights, a gerrymandering. In Ohio today, they're debating another round of attacks on protests. And then you throw into that corruption, which is, you know, we've been named the most corrupt state in the country. You know, it's a cesspool that is coming out of the fact that we are now living, you know, in a, with a generation of majorities in Ohio and elsewhere who've essentially never been in a democratic system. They were, their districts were rigged a decade ago. Most of them are not accountable. A majority averaged double digit wins or, or 20 point wins. And I don't think people anticipate even 10 years ago just how bad things get, how how quickly they go downward when you have essentially politicians who have not, in a, even in their own rises to power, experienced a democratic process. These are also though, the people that draw the lines and set the election rules going forward. They know they would lose with real democracy, so they obviously are rigging everything so they never actually face the voters. It's a real crisis that people know about. But we, we look at it for a day and then we go back to DC for five days and then we think about it for another day. And it never stops until we actually step up and take action. Yeah, for a lot of people, whether you're a party operative, you like politics or you're a media person, it's a lot sexier, I suppose, to cover national politics and state right. politics. And yet your book points out that with the Democrats at least seeming to fall behind, a little bit perhaps asleep at the switch, as Republicans made a very concerted move a few years ago to go ahead and go after these state legislatures. Yeah, I mean, it was 2010 was a, just a terrible year where where you know Karl Rove and, and allies of his really were focused. Uh, Koch brothers had been focused on this for years. And to, to your point, they love that no one pays attention to state houses. They they don't mind if it's paralysis in D.C. because he's you know for for every Marjorie Taylor Greene in D.C. doing nothing, she's in the minority. She doesn't get to vote for anything. There are hundreds of people just like her in state houses actually passing laws every single day. And the Koch brothers and Karl Rove and others love that everyone watches Washington, no one watches these state houses, where the damage is mostly done. One of my chapters of my book is called, With Great Power Comes Great Anonymity. Like, these are very powerful places. They're given a lot of responsibility in our, in our overall constitutional system nationally, yet no one really knows it. And they're just every single day churning away and we too often, you know, we'll freak out every once in a while, but we don't actually ever say, well, how do we stop this? And so one, one point I try to make in the book is, if they're always on offense against democracy, and we only are playing defense sometimes and never on offense, we lose in the history in this country and the history in other countries is, in that scenario, the team is relentlessly attacking democracy inevitably wins if there's not a much harder pushback than we're seeing right now. And one of the other things that we see in your book is you point out that something that may bubble up in one state in a Republican legislature tends to essentially metastasize to a lot of different states. Yeah, I mean, it's not just a metaphor. I mean, these states are literally working as laboratories. You know, they all are trying many things at once. You know, the Texas law is an example. It may or may not pass. It passed. It may or may not survive court scrutiny. Well, if it does pass, all the other states will model after it. If it doesn't pass, They'll see exactly what, I'm sorry, if it doesn't get upheld by the court, they'll all study exactly what the flaw was. And all these states will pass new ones that try and account for that flaw. That's what they did on voting rights for the last decade. You know, We started purging voters in Ohio in an egregious way. It was upheld 5-4 a few years ago at the Supreme Court. 
guess what? Now other states are gonna model off of it. So we've always thought of states as laboratories of democracy. And the point of my book is to say, actually these days, most of them are working as the opposite and they're testing. And here's the, here's the worst part. Again, Koch brothers, Heritage Foundation, others, they now see these as their little playgrounds. So it's not as if each state is stumbling on upon these different efforts. These, these national figures, you know, again, the Heritage Foundation, Koch brothers, they're giving them the legislation which they then pass in the states. So they've weaponized that the Achilles heel of governance in America, I believe, are these state houses. Seeing that Achilles heel, these national groups are weaponizing them to get a national agenda done, while Congress, you know, doesn't basically do much of anything, you know, especially along their agenda. One of the things that I was fortunate to do in my career is about 25 years ago in local news, I had the pleasure of covering Arkansas state legislative politics and policy. And one of the things that I noticed back then is even though there were some very clear differences, Democrats and Republicans, there's a sense of sort of compromise. Yes, they would have their vigorous debates. But you have Republican, I'll never forget, there was a hearing where some protesters came in and tried to shout down the Democrat who was trying to speak. And the Republican committee chair who detested the policy of the Democrats shouted at the demonstrators and said, no, you will let this person, you will let this lawmaker, they're an elected member of this legislature, you will let them speak. It seems like that kind of respect for the system, even if you have your differences, that willingness to sort of you know try to find some common ground is sort of out the window. I mean, I was at a hearing today on the gerrymandering attempt in Ohio. And there's sort of a top line civility and formality to it. Um, but the minute a Democrat starts to push a little bit, I saw it. You know, the, a Republican said, she said point of order. He immediately called for a vote, overruled her and shut her down. I mean, so I think the minute someone actually tries to push back a little bit, they run them over. And this is, this is one of the points I have about the filibuster. You know, in the states, they could care less about the minority. They're running over them again and again. But here we have folks at the Senate saying, well, unless we respect the minority, we're doing something wrong. Well, that would be fine if in states they also were doing the same thing. But here we have these state legislatures running over the minority and voting for voter suppression. And their allies at the federal level are insisting that somehow you have to respect the minority. It's asymmetrical warfare. And these states are gonna win because of it if folks in DC don't really wake up quickly to what's happening. And to circle back to something you pointed out, gerrymandering, it allows some, you know, Republic, a lot of Republicans to be in office without ever facing a competitive race, a competitive district. And as a result, there's no need, there's no incentive for them to compromise whatsoever, right? There's no incentive to compromise. There's every incentive to be extreme. And here's the part I get into my book that, that is relevant to even this talk about how do we do better in rural parts of our country. There's no incentive to actually achieve good public outcomes. There are towns in Ohio that are dying, small towns in rural Ohio dying, and they, they have no possible way to change their representation. We had one town where the state senator literally told when the citizens gathered him and said, our town is dying, what are you gonna do about it? And he had voted for all the policies that hurt this town. He said, well, sometimes you have to move. Who said, I mean, who says in politics, except for someone who knows they can never lose an election? So I, I think the fact, yeah, it's and it's not just 20 or 30 people who are guaranteed election outcomes. It's majorities and supermajorities. None of them wor worry about it. And a system like that, again, the wheels, it, it is not a democratic system in states like Ohio anymore. It, it just, it doesn't meet any definition of a basic democracy. There's no accountability. Again, it's an invitation to extremism. 
It's an invitation to never working with the other side because that's how you'll lose your office if you do. But it's also, it disconnects basic public outcomes from your thinking as a member of these bodies. So if your school public schools are failing, if your towns are dying, if you have no infrastructure, it doesn't matter. You don't get voted out of office. But if you give money over to a for-profit charter school scam or to the big energy company, that's actually how you move up in the world. So, it, and that's why it, these places have become basically massive pay-to-play schemes. What drive? It's not even policy. That's that would be a euphemism. What drives activity in state capitals like Columbus is pay-to-play from the big players. And and if you erode your public schools by taking the money from those schools and forking it over to for-profit online charter school scams, the fact that your schools are failing is never held against you. The fact that you gave it to a big donor, you get a lot of money raised. That's basically the MO now of state houses. And because of gerrymandering, none of these office holders are ever held accountable for any of it. In addition to trying to deal with gerrymandering, and in addition to Democrats you know, waking up, paying some attention to what's going on in state legislatures, what are the other solutions? So um, never let any of these gerrymandered legislature, legislators run without a challenge. I mean, they love it if they're unchallenged. They love the monopoly on the on the discussion. So everyone needs to know who their state rep is, figure out really quickly, are they a champion for democracy or aren't they? If they are, help them, ask them who else you need to help. If they're not, make sure they have an opponent. They love the silence. View politics as a long game. Democrats too often view everything as a one cycle deal. And we judge success or failure based on one cycle. That's not what Stacey Abrams did. She, she knew Georgia was a long game and she fought it as a long game. So even if you have a lot of people running in gerrymandered districts and they don't win, keep going. Register, register, register voters. Don't wait for some hero to do it. Do If you're at a nonprofit, if you run a business, if you're a barbershop, everyone, if you're a mayor, adopt into your mission of your organization that you will always register voters because in states like Ohio, one of the keys to their success is they are purging voters all the time especially the voters you know will not vote against them. You know, It's a shameless plug, but there are a lot of other steps in my book that I well, go through how everyone in their life can fight back. And, and if we don't fight back, I, I greatly worry that the precedent is that we will, not, we will not see a democracy that we now know in a few years. Well, and one of the things in terms of fighting back, a lot of Democrats feel better when they say give money to a competitive, what looks like to be a competitive Senate race or a House race. Right. But it also sounds like, well, wait a second, the, the dollar that is going to a Senate race in North Carolina that the Democrats ultimately lose or South Carolina, maybe that could actually be more effective and go farther in yeah. a state legislative race. No such thing as an off year election. And yes, give locally and don't only give to the ones you think are gonna win. You need to be support. Anyone who steps up to run in a gerrymandered district is a hero. It's designed for them to lose. We need to lift all these people who do it because what we need in places like Ohio is we need 99 candidates for the state house, even in the most rural areas. So, and don't, and give locally, give directly to the candidate. That's what you want. There are a lot of scams out there pulling money out of people's pockets to give to something. Find the candidates you like at the state house level and help them out. David Pepper, the book is Laboratories of Autocracy. David, a terrific project. And I hope a lot of people are paying attention to this and start focusing more on state legislatures and who their representatives are. David, thanks for joining us and we appreciate it. Thank you, great talking to you guys. Great to have you on and that'll do it for this conversation. On behalf of Asher Colfield, Brandon Limer, Gina Kim, and the rest of the gang at TYT, I'm David Schuster. Thanks for watching.